0: Okay, we are. Uh, <coughs> today we are starting Romans chapter 11. And uh, I was going to say we're moving right along, but that would be an exaggeration, of course. <coughs> and I don't need any comment from you, Ron, about that.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: but, uh, so we are in. Uh, we are we are in the, the first few verses of chapter eleven today, and uh, and the argument Paul's argument or Paul's line of reasoning is following right on the heels of the things that we've been looking at in chapter ten. Uh, and there are some things we want to talk about today that take us all the way back to the beginning of Paul's argument in the beginning of chapter 9. So, so we're going to kind of do uh, uh, some additional review today. But to start with, what are some of the things that we talked about last week that you recall? Okay, we talked to some about general revelation and special revelation. What is general revelation? General revelation is like
1: creation, which everybody
0: sees. Okay, it's called general because everybody gets to see it. The whole world, all over the world, people get to see the uh, to see God revealed in nature. In the, for example, in Psalms, he talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how God's glory and, and his character, his, his nature is seen, uh, his divine attributes are seen in uh, creation. So, creation shows us some things about God. How is that distinct from special revelation? Okay, okay. And and how is that different than general revelation?
1: I think the is the difference between creation which everybody sees and the law which made it individual.
0: Okay. Okay, it has to be preached. In other words, uh, special revelation, the things that we learn through special revelation we cannot know through general revelation. So there's some things we know, we can know about God as we look at creation. We can understand his wisdom. We can understand his transcendence. We can understand things like that. But there are things that we can only know if God specially reveals them to us, usually through the preached word or through a prophetic utterance or something like that. So, for example... The gospel itself is part of special revelation. We can't really understand the gospel or know the gospel apart from God going out of his way to communicate it to us. That's special revelation. You look like you're about to say something there, Sarah. Oh, you're just, you're just looking that way. Well, I was just going to add that, that um, Paul links the two those in that the same
1: power is behind both of them. Okay, good. They cannot really be separated. Okay, good. They really... We tend to think, we tend to talk of general revelation and special revelation, and really, they are. Okay, great, good. They work together. Yeah,
0: yeah. And a lot of times, general
1: revelation opens people up to special revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so Paul used um, Psalm nineteen four to.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's interesting. That's one of the things we talked about last week, isn't it? That Psalm 19.4 really is about, in its original context, is about general revelation. But Paul uses it, as you're pointing out. Paul uses it to talk about special revelation, about how the gospel now is being preached in all the world, even as general revelation was revealing God throughout the whole world. So that's, that's a great point. Thank you, Sarah. Anything else from last week we talked about? doctrine of resistible will. Okay, a resistible grace. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> don't, <laughs>
0: you don't normally hear it talked about in those terms, do we? But at the end there, the the, the issue that Paul is dealing with in that passage we looked at last week is the question about why have the Jews not believed? Because he's made it very clear they stumbled over the stumbling stone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and then he goes on to talk about uh, earlier in chapter 10 about the word of faith that he's preaching and, and, and how this word is accessible. It's, it's, uh, it's simple to understand. We don't have to travel some great distance to get it. It's, uh, uh, so the gospel is very accessible. And he says it's accessible to all people. It's accessible to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And, and there's no distinction between them because the same Lord is Lord of all. But then the the question comes up, well, if this is true, then why have the Jews not believed? Because generally, although there are, uh, of course, particularly in the New Testament record, there are many Jews in the initial stages that come to Christ. But as time progresses, fewer and fewer Jews are coming to Christ and more and more Gentiles are coming to Christ. And so the question Paul is asking is, why have the Jews not believed? And he, and he proposes two questions or two answers to that question which he then dismisses as not being legitimate. Do you remember what those two are? He said because they
1: haven't heard.
0: Okay, so one question is have they not heard? Is that the problem? Because what we discovered is is all that somebody needs to do to call upon the name of the Lord is to hear and all you need to have to hear is for somebody to be preached, and for somebody to preach somebody needs to be sent. Uh, but... With that being said, all they need to do is hear. So maybe they haven't heard. And what's his answer to that? Of
1: course
0: they, have heard. they have heard. How does he know they've heard? What is What reason does he give there in those verses at the end of chapter 10? He knows they've heard. Okay. And that's the point we were just talking about with Sarah, wasn't it? That, that he's taking that passage from Psalm 19 and he's applying it to the special revelation of the word of grace, the gospel of Christ that's been preached. And, and he says it's gone out all over the world. Is Paul exaggerating there? We have all the Jews who have been dispersed and who have
1: witnessed more Okay.
0: Great, good. So particular, and that's just one example, but at Pentecost we have, he says, Jews from every nation under the earth, he says in Acts chapter 5. So we have, we have all these Jews from all over the world at Pentecost when the gospel is preached and thousands of people, 5,000 in the first day, thousands of people get saved and then many of those Jews go back to their original homes uh, presumably taking the gospel with them, so Paul knows that in fact, certainly in the world where the diaspora is, in the world where the Jews live, uh, which is really pretty much all over the world, but in, at least in that part of the world, the Jews have had an opportunity to hear the gospel. So, so the question is not whether or not they've heard. So, if we know they've heard, then what's the other po- what's another possible explanation that Paul gives for Why they haven't believed. They didn't understand. understand. Okay. So it's just this thing is just too difficult. We can't grasp this idea. Okay. So I've heard it, but I don't understand it. Okay. And Paul's answer to that is what? Maybe let's go back, and reteach that well, part. I think of verse twenty.
1: Maybe just what they're looking for is Isaiah said that I found those who taught me not. I don't think that's it. They talk about verse twenty-one.
0: he They hands of into disobedient, obstinate people. That doesn't explain. No, it's a little ambiguous because the uh, because he because of the word he uses there. But it's in verse nineteen. He says, "But I say surely." Uh, Israel did not know did they and the idea there the question he's asking is they did not understand did they and but then he says but Moses says I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation and by a nation without understanding I will anger you so he talks about how God is going to use the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous So he's going to—he's going to. What he's referring to there is—is exactly what's happening now in Paul's day. The preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, and here's the people who did not—they didn't have any clue about any of this stuff that the Jews knew. So the Jews really have an advantage because they know all kinds of things about God that Gentiles didn't know. So here we have the Gentiles who had no understanding whatsoever. They knew nothing about this God and God comes to them uh, and, and stretches out His hands to them and welcomes them and they receive the gospel and they understand it. So the point is, if in fact the Gentiles, the people who did not understand, can come to faith, then certainly there's not a problem with the Jews understanding it. Okay? The phrase used last week was, God
1: uh, said, you made me jealous.
0: Yes. And me jealous. Yes. And that's the point that, that he makes uh, there back in Deuteronomy is, is, uh, is you're going to go after all these gods and you're going to serve all these other gods instead of me. You're going to go whoring after the other gods and this is going to make me, this makes me jealous. And because you have made me jealous, I will make you jealous. And so, and so, Paul's argument is, if in fact all these people over here who had no understanding can now understand just by the simple hearing of the gospel preached, then certainly the Jews also understood. So, Paul's conclusion then is, if in fact the Jews have heard, and if in fact the Jews have understood, then what possible explanation do we have for the fact that they have not believed. And we get to verse 21. Which is what? Of, they're
1: obstinate. Okay, yeah.
0: They're, they, excuse me? Yeah, they're just defiant. They're a disobedient, he says, and obstinate people. They have just refused to believe. And he says, I have stretched out my hands all day to a uh, a disobedient and an obstinate people. So we get this picture of God extending the invitation of the gospel to these Jews and they are just obstinately refusing to believe one of the reasons there as we'll see one of the reasons they're obstinately refusing is because they don't want to be a part of what's been offered to the Gentiles but we'll get to that later in chapter 11 but but uh, so we see this picture, and and we use, I used this term at the end of the lesson last week, and and Sarah just mentioned it. The idea of resistible grace. We always hear uh, there are those that believe uh, in what's called irresistible grace. That if God has chosen to show His grace to somebody and extends His grace to somebody, it cannot be resisted. They must come to salvation, okay? But what we see clearly here presented is God offering salvation. I've stretched out my hands to you. And Jesus puts it very explicitly. We talked about the passage in Luke where Jesus speaking of Jerusalem he says he he says how often he says it was my will it's translated in our translations often. How often I would have, but the word that he uses there is the same word that's translated "I will" or "I desire." And so he says, "How often I would or I willed that you that I, to gather your children together." And and he says. He says, "But you would not have it." Or again, using that same word, they're saying it was. He's saying it was not your will. It was my will to gather you together, but it was not your will. And so, this thing that's going to happen to Jerusalem is inevitably going to happen because Israel has refused. So, so I believe very clearly we see in in particular in that passage in Luke and here in. In the quotation that Paul is citing here at the end of chapter 10, I think we see very clearly that God's grace is resistible. That God offers his grace, but it's a question of whether or not it's our will to receive it, whether we'll choose to receive it. So I call it the doctrine of resistible grace. Okay. Well, so that brings up the question then. If God has stretched out his hand so long to this disobedient and this obstinate people, and they have refused the offer of salvation that God has given to them. And then we look at the condition of Israel in Paul's day and how even though they had all these promises and these blessings that he talked about early in chapter 9, how they had the covenant and they had the law and they they had the Christ according to the flesh and they had the fathers. They had all these blessings and all these promises that God offered them. They had all those things, but now in Paul's day, all those things are, are of no effect, apparently. And Israel is rejecting the God who has given them all these blessings and all these promises, then the question would naturally arise, well, has God rejected Israel? I mean, when you think about it, if if there was somebody that you had shown all kinds of favor and blessing to and promises to and you'd done it over and over again and, and they had just constantly, repeatedly, over many, 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 many years turned a cold shoulder to you, wouldn't you eventually just write them off? you know i'm afraid I'm afraid I would I would just write them off. so the natural question then is, has God rejected his people, and that's what we open with in chapter eleven. So looking at the verses in chapter eleven that we have, uh he says, "I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be for I too am an Israelite." Uh, descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed Your prophets. They have torn down Your altars. And I alone have left. And they are seeking My life. But what is the divine response to Him? I have kept for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice or God's choice of grace. Okay, well, that's certainly as far as we hope to get today. So we'll stop there. So Paul begins to deal with uh, here in these verses that we're going to look at today he begins to deal with this thing we call the remnant okay now this takes us all the way back to some of our first lessons in Romans 9 okay so remember when we started Romans 9 we said Romans 9 10 11 is kind of a total argument it's a, it it uh, there, it's three chapters that are really tied together in kind of one long argument that Paul is making and really the argument has to do with the people of God the nation of Israel and what is God's dealing with them how do we how do we piece this whole thing together about Israel where does this all fit in to God's redemptive purposes this is what Paul is dealing with and I think personally that in large measure he's answering this question about God's faithfulness that comes up at the end of chapter 8. Remember at the end of chapter 8, Paul had said uh, that he, he had promised us, he said, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, neither tribulation stresses and he goes through this whole list of things. There's nothing. So, so as Christians, we have this tremendous assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What about the Jews? Didn't God love them? And so, in one sense, I think Paul is, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, what he's doing is he's saying, he's saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that the Jews are evidence that somebody can be separated from the love of God. And I'm going to show you that even with the Jews, they cannot be separated from the love of God. Okay, so so the whole really the whole question he's dealing with all the way through nine, 10 and 11. The whole question he's dealing with is, has has God's word concerning Israel failed? It's the question that he asked clear back in the beginning of chapter nine in verse six, where he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he says, for they are not all Israel who are the descendants, uh, who are descended from Israel. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So, of course, we've talked about all this before. That Paul is wrestling with the question of, okay, we have Israel and they were God's chosen people and he blessed them and he gave them all those promises. But now we have this ugly mess on our hands. Where they have rejected Christ. They've rejected the the word of truth, the word of faith that I'm preaching. They have rejected that. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The Gentiles, on the other hand, are coming in. They're coming in by the droves. They're coming in by the thousands and being converted. And the Jews, on the other hand, are, are becoming more and more callous and more and more hardened and turning and becoming more vigorous in their opposition to the gospel. And so we have this ugly situation. And so the question is, has God's word failed? In, in reference to his chosen people, the Jews. And then he made that statement. Remember, he made that statement there. And we just read it there in, in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, remember when we talked about that passage and for about a couple of weeks there, two or three weeks, we kept drawing, drawing this diagram on the board. Remember the diagram of the circles? And so we had these di- this diagram of the circles. And what we were noticing as we went through the, for that first half or so of chapter 9 is that circle kept get, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, right? What was it that made the circle get smaller? What happened every time the circle got smaller? OK, there was a promise made. So God starts out and he gives this big promise to Abraham. And so initially it kind of looks like all Abraham's descendants are in on this deal. But then he gives another promise and that promise he gives to Isaac. OK, and to Rebecca. And that narrows the the scope. And what Paul, the the, the arguments Paul is making is that not, all of Israel, not all the descendants of Israel, are Israel. And so then we learn, and I don't want to rehash everything we talked about back in chapter 9, but we learned that throughout chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul talks about two Israels. Okay. And when we look at this series of circles, what we realize is that in the bigger circle, that's what we call ethnic Israel. Those are the ones who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of the twelve sons of Jacob, they constitute ethnic Israel. And at some points in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's talking about ethnic Israel. But he also, at times, talks about that little circle down at the very bottom. And I called it spiritual Israel or righteous Israel. And those are the ones who are saved by total. Okay, And he now calls them, in this chapter, He, call, and, he and he did it earlier one time, he calls them the remnant. Okay? So there is this remnant, this little group. So when Paul is talking about Israel, as we read these verses and think about these verses, we have to ask ourselves, which Israel is he talking about? Because clearly in chapter 9, the first few verses it's very clear he's talking about ethnic Israel. He talks about how they got all these promises and you know the, they have the Christ according to the flesh. And here in this passage, he talks about how I am an Israelite, a son of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, So so you have him clearly talking about ethnic Israel, all the descendants of Abraham through Isaac mm-hmm. and Jacob. And at other times, he's just talking about the old remnant. So we've got to keep that in mind. All that was by way of review as we... Pick up Paul's argument here, okay? So, as he starts out then in verse 11, chapter 11, and he says, I say then, has God not rejected his people? God has not rejected his people, has he? He's expecting a negative answer to this question, which is why he words it that way. And his answer, of course, is, may it never be. This, you know, this, this is unthinkable. This is unthinkable that God could have rejected his people. But why is it unthinkable? I mean, they've rejected him. They stubbornly refused. As Jesus says, uh, as Jesus says, how many times I would have done this? And here in the passage that uh, Paul quotes there at the end of 10, he says, all day long. I just, so, for, for, for the, throughout the history of the Jews, they've been rejecting him. So, why would we assume then that God has not rejected them also? Um. But Paul emphatically says, no, this is not the case. Okay. And then he says, for I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So, which Israel are we talking about in chapter, in, in verse one of chapter 11? It
1: could be talking about ethnic Israel since he's included in the tribe of Benjamin.
0: Okay, okay. He's talking about ethnic Israel because... Because he's talking about how he himself is a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so so he's not talking about his relationship with God through faith. But he's talking about his relationship with God through his physical lineage. Okay, so clearly here he's talking about ethnic Israel. So the question that he's proposing is. Has God rejected the nation of Israel? The question is not whether or not he's rejected the remnant that he's going to talk about in a minute. The question is whether or not he has rejected the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay? And and he says, absolutely not. So, this is his, his denial that God has rejected Israel is not a denial that God has rejected the remnant. It's his denial, that, and because he hasn't even brought up the subject of the remnant yet. It's not his denial that God has rejected the remnant. It's his denial that God has rejected all of Israel. The nation of Israel, as a whole, as a people, as, a, as an entity. Okay, That God has not rejected them. And then he makes this statement. He says, for I too am an Israelite. Descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so there are actually kind of three different ideas, main ideas, as to what Paul is saying here. Is this, the question is is this is this one of the reasons why we know that God has not rejected Israel? Is Paul offering us one of the reasons here? Okay, and and if so, what is that reason? And and there are three possible explanations, and and two of them, uh, I, I to be honest with you, I haven't really settled on which one I think is. Uh, is uh, definitely what Paul is trying to say here, but I'll put them out for you to think about uh, in your own thoughts. Uh, First of all, he could be saying just simply this. Because I am a Jew myself, and because of my love for my people, which he's talked about a couple of times in these chapters. Remember, he talks about how you know, I would rather, you know, perish rather than have them perish. And he, and he talks about how hard he prays for them. And So we know how deeply Paul loves the Jews and how deeply he cares for them. And so it could be that what Paul is saying simply here is that as a Jew, with my deep love and passion for the Jews, it's just unthinkable to me that God could ever have rejected us. Okay. So it's. It's kind of Paul's deeply personal reason why it's unthinkable that God could reject the Jews. Because I'm a Jew and I love the Jews so much and I care for the Jews. And if I love the Jews and care for the Jews that much, it's unimaginable to me that God does not also. And so I just can't imagine. Because I look at the Jews and Paul's speaking here, I look at the Jews and, and I see what a mess they are and I still love them. So, so it's just unthinkable to me that God would not still love his people. Okay. So it's kind of a almost a visceral just repudiation of the idea of rejection. Okay. Another possible meaning is that what he's saying is, look, I'm a Jew, but God has raised me up as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so I'm taking the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. How can we imagine that God has rejected the Jews when he's using a Jew to reach the Gentiles? Okay. So, maybe that's what Paul is saying. The third possibility is he's saying, he's kind of giving us a, a kind of a prelude to the whole remnant argument. He's saying, well, look, God saved me. I'm saved." And God's had mercy on me and I'm a Jew. So obviously, at least some of us Jews are getting saved. So how could we say that God has rejected the Jews? Okay. So you have three possibilities there. Yeah, I don't know. You may think of another one. But those seem to be the ones that commentators tend to focus on as the three possibilities of what Paul is saying there, right? Uh, like I say, I haven't firmly settled it in my own mind. I kind of lean towards the first one, which is Paul's kind of visceral. This is just unthinkable to me because as a Jew, I just cannot imagine this. Where,
1: uh, yes, know, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I'm also wondering how much of that could be because many Jews because they're descended from the tribe of Judah. And I wonder how many of these and all the audience are thinking because they're descended from the tribe of Judah. Everyone else was getting cut out. But
0: he's well, they don't get their name because they're descend. They don't get the name Jew because they're descendants of Judah. They get their name because the nation was associated with uh, with the name Judah. Okay. Uh,
1: okay.
0: So yeah, and Benjamin was absorbed with okay. the tribe of Judah. Yes, uh, Benjamin identified with Judah during the split. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I don't think that's so much the issue there, but. So, I was going to say, I, I lean a little bit towards that first argument, but I also see that Paul is moving towards this argument of a remnant. So, within the context, we could say maybe that third argument is also a very powerful argument. Uh, I, I'm not as persuaded by the second one. But, but uh, but but as I say, I haven't resolved that issue, and I don't know how critical it is uh, for you to resolve that issue uh, here today. So, uh, I'll just give those thoughts for you, and you can meditate on that and think about what do you think Paul is saying there? But I kind of lean towards the first and the third. Yeah, Ron. But if, if, uh, if he
1: has rejected to Jews, then how did Paul get saved?
0: Okay. Which is really the third argument, right? Yes, yes, yeah. 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 That's a good point, yeah. And that's where he's going, kind of, because he's gone through this whole argument of the remnant. So there's a very strong argument that can be made for that third explanation. Yeah, good point. Okay, so so paul just says he says you know i'm a jew and this isn't going to happen okay and but then he, but then we pick it up in verse two and he and he's very emphatic now at this point and he just makes an, just an emphatic statement he says god has not rejected his people whom he foreknew okay and then uh, in, in, in a, in a little bit later he goes into this Uh, recounting of the story of Elijah and quotes from that story of Elijah. So Paul is really offering for us here two or three reasons why we know that God has not rejected Israel. And and the first one is this very personal reason. I am a Jew. Okay? And... uh, and and because I'm speaking as you or whatever, whether you view the first, second, or third reason, that's one of the reasons why Paul just thinks it's unthinkable that one could re- that God could have rejected the Jews. Okay, so that's one reason he offers. The second reason, so that's a very personal reason he offers. The second reason he offers is a theological reason. Okay, now, what we could call a theological reason. He has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Okay, so we know that God is not going to reject the people he foreknew. OK, so that's the theological reason. And then we have the historical precedent reason. Okay, and the historical precedent reason is the story of Elijah and what happened there with Elijah and the seven thousand men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay, so those are the things that we're going to explore today uh, as we uh, as we. Try to understand. How do we know that God has not rejected Israel? Well, we've talked about the first one, and the first one is that very personal reason of Paul's. The second is the one that that uh, that we could call the theological reason, and that is that God has not rejected the people that He foreknew. Paul just states that outright. He didn't ask a question. He doesn't suggest it as a possibility. He's very emphatic. He's categorically stating that God has not rejected the people whom He foretold. Now, remember, who are the people here? What people is He talking about? The nation. the nation of Israel. Okay, He's not talking about the remnant yet. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And He's saying, God has not rejected these people whom he foreknew. Okay. Uh, now, we, when we were back in Romans chapter 8, we stopped and we talked uh, about this idea of God's foreknowledge. Okay. But if you're like me, you've got to hear something more than once to get it down. right? Okay. So we're going to review some of the things we said about foreknowledge back in Romans 8 to kind of refresh our minds about this idea of foreknowledge. I want to do that uh, today. But before I do that, I want us to understand when Paul is speaking of God's foreknowledge here in this verse, of whom does that foreknowledge pertain? Who's it related to? Who is foreknown? The Jews. The the people. Not the remnant. He's not talking about the remnant yet. He hasn't brought that up. He's talking about the whole nation, which includes the remnant, but also includes all the unbelievers. Right? Okay? So the foreknowledge here is not a foreknowledge merely of those that are saved, but it's of all the nation of Israel. Okay? Now, let's go, as I said, then let's stop and, and think a little bit uh, on this whole idea of foreknowledge because we have uh, we have two suggested meanings for the word foreknowledge in this passage in Romans chapter 8 and in a couple other places now the word foreknowledge uh, and the word uh, the word foreknowledge which is a noun and the word uh, the phrase to know uh, or to foreknow uh, the verb okay the related words okay They appear extensively throughout the scriptures and throughout extra biblical writings. They're all over the place, okay? The noun and the verb foreknowledge and to foreknow. Okay? They're all over the place, okay? And in almost every case where those words are used, they mean simply, we can tell from the context, which is how you determine the meaning of any word. You can tell from the context they mean simply to know beforehand, just simply that prescience, the idea of understanding, knowing something before it occurs, okay, or before the time that you're speaking about, okay. So, but in a handful of cases, it is suggested that these two words, foreknowledge and to foreknow, mean something different than what they mean in other places, okay? So, we are given two possible means. When I say possible, I mean suggested means. I don't mean necessarily that you can pick or choose between them, uh, but that that people suggest two possible means for the word in this verse and in a handful of other persons, okay? And, And option one or alternative one is simply to know beforehand, uh, and that's the idea of what we call prescience, okay? Prescience. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Petrina was citing an example of prescience. What, what was it the other day? Uh, yes, it's supper table. You were giving us an example of your prescience in a... the. Oh, yeah, the movie Cars. That's right. Y'all you you all know Cars? Y'all watch Cars? Okay, favorite movie, right? Okay. Okay. And there's a. And there's a, a, a thing a thing in it. what what is the case And give give it to me again, uh, when I'm watching car,
1: and I know that my thing is the not to get tires. Oh yes.
0: Yeah, that's right. There at, the, at the, in the race he's he's gonna bypass the 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 uh uh the opportunity to get new tires on his uh, on, uh, on his car. On, his, on himself. And so he's going to end up blowing. You know, And you just know that's what's going to happen. right? And the reason you know it is because you know that's the way people write movies. Right? Okay. So you just know it's going to happen before it happens. That's prescience. Okay. Now it's fallible prescience. The difference between that and God is God's prescience is not fallible. It's infallible. Okay. But it's the idea simply of knowing beforehand. Alternative two really includes a, whole, uh, a list of several different meanings, okay? But alternative two is, it really means to elect or choose, to love, or to be intimate with. Those are the primary, okay? And and those are really three different things. They're not the same, okay? But they are offered as the alternate to this in a handful of passages, Okay? And the argument is made that in all cases and, and, and people, commentators and scholars pretty much agree on this, that in the vast majority of cases, this is what it means. But in a handful of cases, some scholars and some commentators say it really means one of these. And in any given verse, I get to pick which one of these it means. Okay. Okay. So, for example, as I'm studying Romans chapter 11 here and I'm reading one, uh, one commentary I really love and I really enjoy. But I disagree with guys several points, uh, <coughs> at a number of points, but it's a really good commentary. It's highly respected. And I'm reading and he just says, well, in this verse, God's foreknowledge means his election, his choosing. OK, now, he, he doesn't prove it. He doesn't. He doesn't argue it. He just states it. Okay, this is what it means. Okay, well, so you're given these two alternatives, this one or this kind of category over here. Okay, and the principle that it's based on is the idea that in all cases where the word is used, it means this. Unless it's talking about God, then it means one of these. And I go, well, how do we know that? The premise that it's based on is the premise that a word which always means something whenever it's used, means something else when it talks about God. What's the problem with that? What happens if you do that?
1: That's where you get into Wonky theology, you're
0: misreading them, okay. Why? Why can't
1: you do
0: that with anything? Okay. Why can't you do that with anything that's where it speaks about God? Yes, precisely.
1: That's why we use the Bible to interpret
0: the Bible. Yeah, uh, because if if we say that words have their normal meaning as they are used in everyday usage, every place except when we talk about God, but when we talk about God, they have a different meaning. Not a modified meaning, but a different meaning. What we've said is we can't know anything about God. Because whenever it talks about God, words suddenly change their meaning. And how do we know what that meaning is? We say, well, because we look at the Bible and we look at what the Bible says about God. Everything the Bible says about God is up for grabs. Right? If we change the meaning of the words. okay, How do we know? The only way I can decide that when we talk about God with this word, whatever the word is, whether it's love or foreknowledge or or omnipotence or whatever the word is, when I use it in reference to God and it has a different meaning, the only way I can determine what that meaning is is by my philosophical presuppositions. What does that mean? Well, that means... That when I'm coming to the Scriptures, I'm not coming to the Scriptures to exegete them. I'm coming to eisegete them. To exegete means to draw out of something, to pull out of something. That's what we want to do with the Bible. We want to pull out of the Bible what is there. Eisegesis means to put into something. And eisegesis is the practice of coming to the Scripture and reading into the Scriptures what I decide I want the Scriptures to mean. Okay. so we are given these two possibilities. Well, so when we come to, uh, for example, uh, when we come to, to, uh, to this passage, then we have to ask ourselves, in addition to the problem we've already wrestled with, is there any reason to abandon this meaning and attach this meaning? Or one of these meanings? Is there a reason in the text? And I want to suggest to you that this passage, if read with this meaning, makes perfect sense. Now, somebody could say, well, it makes sense this way too. And it does. If if you're coming from a certain theological predisposition, it does make sense. I'm not going to argue with that. But the question is, why would we abandon the overwhelming, overwhelmingly known meaning for a word? Why would we abandon that if it makes perfect sense? Unless we wanted to say something else. Okay. so. So with all that being said, then the question is, what is for nothing? And like I said, we talked about all this back in Romans chapter eight. But foreknowledge has to do with God's what? Um, Omnipresence, omniscience, and all of that comes under the category of His transcendence. Transcendence. What do we mean when we say God is transcendent?
1: He's eternal. He's or eternal. He's all.
0: Okay, he transcends everything, right? He's over everything, okay? And so when we speak of God's transcendence, we understand that God is not confined by space. Space is the thing we deal with. We live in it, right? We operate in space. And I know it bothers your mind probably as well as it does mine that the universe is space and what's outside of the universe? Well, in our minds, we think there has to be more space, but... There's not. Okay? Scientists tell us this and we go, I'm sorry, this doesn't compute. There's got to be more space. Because that's the only way we can think. Because we were created as spatial creatures. Okay? God transcends space. He's outside of space. He's in space too. But he's outside of space. The same thing, we've talked about this many, many times, the same thing is true about time. God transcends time. He's outside of time. Ronnie was talking about this just the last couple weeks. He's talking about you know things don't happen sequentially to God they just you know God you know he doesn't know things sequentially he doesn't discover anything he doesn't learn anything. God just knows so when we speak of God's foreknowledge, that isn't sense an anthropomorphism that's that's a human way of talking about God's knowledge. God doesn't know anything before it happens, okay he just knows. He just knows. So when we speak of God's foreknowledge, we're simply saying that God had knowledge of this before it happened in my experience. Before I experienced it. In time, God already knew it. Okay. So it has to do with His transcendence, His awareness of all things. Now, He doesn't just know about the things uh, that happened. He knows about the things that didn't happen. For example, Jesus says, regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, He says, well, now, you know, we know what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, but if such and such had not happened, this is what would have happened. Right? So Jesus, speaking as God, knows what would have happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Had they done something they didn't do. Repented. Right? So, or if the miracles, excuse me, if the miracles which have been done uh, uh, in in Israel have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, we know what, what Sodom and Gomorrah would have done. He says, I know this. Okay, How does he know that? Well, because God, in his foreknowledge, he knows every eventuality. He knows every potentiality. He knows every alternative reality. He knows everything that... Could have happened, might have happened didn't happen because something else happened or did happen because something else did he knows all of those things, and he understands all of that perfectly and he understands all of it before it actually happens in time sequence in our rea- in our reality in our experience okay. so when we're speaking of god's foreknowledge that's what we're talking about now when the word to foreknow. Or the word foreknowledge. Or used. Particularly when the word to know. Uh, to foreknow is used. The verb. Is used in Greek. It has nothing to do with relationship. It has nothing to do with relationship. It has to do. With the idea of cognizance. Okay. Now. There are those who would argue that 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 God knowing is related to relationship, but they're making an argument based on a Septuagint translation of a Hebrew word in the Book of Amos. Okay, so you got a Hebrew word, and when the when the Jewish translators translated the Hebrew into Greek, they used a particular Greek word uh, to translate the Hebrew word. And then modern translators take or interpreters take that Greek word, which is contained in the entomology, the construction of the word foreknowledge. So it's a part of the word foreknowledge. And they take that word knowledge and they go back and they say, well, the Greek translators use that to translate the Hebrew word. So what God was saying there in Hebrew in Amos chapter 2, I believe it is, or 3, what God was saying there in Amos, uh, He's really saying over here has to do with relationship. And so when He talks about foreknowledge, which is a different Greek word than the Greek word that was used, you see how convoluted it gets? It gets to be this kind of changing. And what happens is we've ignored all kinds of principles of translation and interpretation. We violate violated. And one of them is we have defined a word by its entomology rather than by its usage. We don't define a word by its entomology. We don't define a word by, by the composite. We don't just take all the composite parts of a word and add them together and go, that's what the word means. That's not how we figure out what a word means.
1: As well, yeah,
0: yeah what we, how we figure out what a word means. This is, this is a, just a principle of interpretation. It's a principle of translation. Okay. Commonly understood is we do not define the meaning of a word by its entomology. We define the meaning of a word by its usage. And what did I say? I said over and over and over again throughout both scripture and secular literature, this word always means, except possibly in these few cases, always means simply to know beforehand. doesn't have the connotation of relationship, it uh, doesn't have the connotation of love. doesn't have the connotation of intimacy. It doesn't have any of those things. Well, let's just sum up what we've learned so far then. Uh, just, I'm just checking my notes to make sure I've covered everything I want to say before I sum up. Uh, let me back up and make this one other point. Uh, God's foreknowledge is not causative. God's foreknowledge is not determinative. Okay. There are those who say, well, if God foreknows something, then it must therefore happen. And so, it's going to happen. And if it's going to happen because we know God foreknew it and it's going to happen, therefore, God's foreknowledge caused it. That's a confusion of categories. Okay. In in uh, in the study of logic, you you study about the confusion of categories. Okay, And and you have two distinct categories here. Uh, You have the study of causation. Okay, And you have the study of knowledge. And what happens when somebody says uh, when somebody says. God's knowledge causes something, you've conflated these two categories. You've compared apples with oranges. Okay, You've mixed these two categories. The category of causation with the category of knowledge. Okay, I can know something and not cause it. Now, the example that Petrina was citing from the movie Cars, she didn't write the movie. She didn't make it happen. But she knew what was going to happen. Okay, now, nearly see he was fallible. It could have happened otherwise. But it, it illustrates the point. You know it with your kids. Under certain circumstances, you know what your kid's going to do, right? You anticipate it and you take preventive measures. <laughs> okay, right? Because you know it. You're not, that's not infallible. You may be wrong. But you're knowing what your child would do. Given that the door is open. You know, and a little two year old's there, the door's open, the street's out there, there's a ball in the street. You just know. It's inevitable. You know, you know. <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> you know. Based on past death. Yeah, you know it based
0: on past death. So so you know, but you haven't caused your child to run out in the street and grab the ball and get run over by a car. You didn't cause that. You would never have caused that. But you know that that's what's going to happen. Okay. So there's a difference between knowing and causing. And and so God can know beforehand what I will freely choose to do, and know it infallibly, because he's God. But that doesn't mean that he has determined that I would do it. I acted freely, and God knew, infallibly knew, how I would freely act. Okay? So With all that being said, what is Paul saying here when he says God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew? Well, if we just take the simple meaning of the word "foreknow," then what he's saying is that concerning the nation of Israel, God knew. What did He know? He knew everything. Which included what? Pardon? Their rejection of Him. He knew that. When did He know that? From eternity past. So He knew it from eternity past. Did He know it when He made His promises to Abraham? Did He know it when He made His promises to Isaac? Did He know it when He made His promises to Jacob? Did He know it when He made His promises to David?
1: Certainly He did.
0: So what Paul is simply saying here is, look folks, None of this has taken God by surprise. God God wasn't blindsided by what Israel did. Now, if God was blindsided, we could understand that he would reject Israel. But God fully knew that these things would happen when he made these promises. There's no greater example of this I can think of than in the Old Testament when the children of Israel are getting ready uh, when they come into the Promised Land uh, and then uh, after they have come into the Promised Land and God divides the whole nation up onto two different mountains. And one is the mountain of blessing and the other is the mountain of curses. And He goes through a litany of all the blessings that God is going to do and all the curses that He's going to bring upon Israel. Right? And what He's saying is He's saying... And you see this all the way through the Old Testament. You see it in the Song of Moses we referred to last week. You see it uh, you see it in the book of Joshua. Uh, you see it in the books of the prophets. Repeatedly, God says, I'm going to bless you and, you're always going to, and then you're going to turn on me and you're going to go after idols and you're going to do all this stuff and I'm going to send you into exile, and then I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to bless you. All the way through the Old Testament, you get this picture, right? And it's God saying, listen, I've got this thing whole figured out. You're not going to take me by surprise. So I promise I will do these things for you, but I know that you are going to rebel and you're going to be disobedient, you're going to be obstinate, you're going to reject me, you're going to reject my son. I know you're going to do all that. And in the end, I'm still going to save you all. We haven't gotten there yet, have we? Because we're not at the end of chapter 11. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, that's exactly what he says. All Israel will be saved. If he knew he
1: was going to reject them and they rebelled, he would
0: have rejected them. Exactly. 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 And that's why Paul can say, Well, obviously he's not going to reject, because he knew about all this. Well you go, okay, that's all about Israel. What's that got to do with me? Well, what doesn't have to do with you? Have you ever in your life come to a point in your life and you go, Oh man, I have screwed up so bad. I have blown it so bad. Uh -uh. I'm afraid God's just going to give up on me. Oh, so what you're saying is you took God by surprise, huh? Because remember back when you got saved? You got saved and God gave you all these promises, right? You go, I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to take you to heaven. We're going to fellowship forever. I'm going to bless you. And he made you all these promises when you got saved, right? But woe is you. You blew it somewhere down the road, you really blew it. Really bad. And you're going, boy, I really let God down there. I'm not sure He's still going to do all that stuff He said He was going to do. But God foreknew it, didn't He? He knew it. He knew how you were going to fail. He knew how you were going to You were going to be obstinate and disobedient. You were going to shake your fist at him. He knew all of that. And he still saved you and promised you all that stuff. And so we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because he knew all that when he loved us in the first place. Okay. Well, we didn't get all the way through these verses. We still have to talk about the story of Elijah. So we'll pick that up and go on into the following verses next week.